Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our members of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Casper J, at Adequate Ryan, Cyril O, at Kruna, Andrew C, at Green Tard Cycle, and Thomas C. Back on Smith Weekly Discussions today is Dustin Garrow. Dustin is the founder and managing principal of Nuclear Fuel Associates, a consultancy suite on all things commercial, nuclear power, and its hunger for a good diet of uranium. Dustin has many decades of experience in the business, including sales of uranium concentrate to utilities globally in the billions of dollars range. You can learn more about Nuclear Fuel Associates via their website, nuclearfuelassociates.com. Mr. Garo, what's new? Uh, well, first of all, I appreciate being back on, Andrew. It's been a little while since we've, uh, we've had a, a formal discussion. But certainly, uh, you know, as you point out, I've been in the business for several decades, and I think we're seeing an interesting confluence of events. You know, the, the interview that uh, Tim Gitzel gave to CIBC a week or so ago, he said, you know, 2021 was a real watershed for nuclear power and therefore for uranium. So I think we're entering one of those phases of the market where it's going to be pretty exciting for the next uh, maybe hopefully several years. Well, let's dive right in here, Dustin. First off, what are you seeing and hearing from utilities and what do you perceive as their sense of urgency to go out contracting for pounds? One thing that kind of sets the stage is the Nuclear Energy Institute held their International Uranium Fuel Seminar in Savannah, Georgia in early November. And it was the first in-person face-to-face industry meeting in they said well 22 months and you know good turnout from the certainly the u.s utilities it tends to be more u.s focused and i had one-on-one meetings i think with six or seven of the biggest uh utility fuel managers the program in savannah was very uranium focused uh there were presentations from cameco kazadam prom sprott trade tech, all the major players. And the utilities uh, are really focusing now, I think, on covering off not just spot or, you know, in the midterm market, which is go out maybe two or three years, but the the true long-term market. And so what we've seen post-Savannah was uh, a couple of the biggest U.S. uh, nuclear utilities did enter the longer term market. In other words, one of them was looking for deliveries out beyond 2030. Now, there's not been any real feedback yet on what they saw, but I think this could be, you know, the start of uh, a much more active term contracting sector during 2022. It's, uh, you know, the utilities, like I said, are focused on it. What they heard was all, I think, was uh, concerning to them. In other words, uh, you know, like Sprott, they got up and said they want to be the the second most important customer to the producers after the utilities. And so they're talking about long-term purchase agreements. 
uh, for the physical trust. You know, so I won't go into the details of all the presentations, but again, I think it was, you know, the right time for everyone to get together. The focus now, you know, the, the term contract volume, uh, UX is reported was still under 100 million pounds in 2021. I think we'll see a noticeably higher volume contracted this year. It'll be interesting to see what happens on that front. Again, looking for those uh, notable volume years, uh, which I think are certainly ahead of us here. This year seems that things will probably be slow. Not opposed to that. I know a lot of folks have screened bloody murder in the uranium sector recently with the equities, you know, on average now, you know, 40, 50 plus percent down. But while things do bleed out and get a little bit uh, slow in the meantime, it's great for accumulators and for folks that had cash on the sidelines, which they're following Smith Weekly research, you should have had cash on the sidelines and hence no big need to say much other than you do have broad market conditions that have also led to this. So I think it'll be an interesting year. And to be honest, it would be nice to see things uh, chop for a while, to be honest. But things are lining up very, very well. Continue to tally up on the bullish side, not too many tally on the bear side. So we'll see what happens. How about uh, reverse carry trade, Dustin? And just you know, overall carry trade actions that are out there. I'm of the opinion that it makes more sense to clear some of these reverse carry trades now rather than later. Uh, in the cycle, but any comments on you know the carry trade, the reverse carry trade action that so with the spread that we have here between spot and term, uh, any numbers that you can provide as far as ballparks on what you see tied up in carry trades, and where do you see this going as term contracting starts to kick in? Well, first of all, kind of again broadly on carry trade, I think as uh, as you're aware and, and probably most of your audience, this is something that came up and let's pick a date maybe five years ago. And it was, you know, really driven by the significant difference in the spot and term prices and extremely low interest rates. I mean, at one point, uh, one of the Japanese trading companies had negative interest rates they were able to, to harvest. And so particularly in the U.S., I mean, I don't think carry trade's been that uh, broadly, uh, you know, embraced outside the U.S. utility side. But they found, found it as a way to cover off kind of that two, three, and then eventually maybe four-year uh, forward period under very attractive prices. In other words, it was even with uh, the interest attached, a little bit of a profit margin that the, the traders or, you know, that, that wanted to be involved in carry trade, you were still well below the, the new term contract price levels. So, you know, I think there were, I don't, I've never seen a number, but I think it's got to be in the, you know, maybe 15, 20 million pounds could be, you know, wouldn't surprise me over a four year, you know, period going forward. And that would only be 10% of the, you know, utilities, U.S. utility requirements uh, if it was just averaged out. Could be more than that. But now I think what we've seen is, uh, you know, one of the, the big topics has been, well, where's all the spot material coming from? You know, last year, UX reported 99.4 million pounds of transactions. Now, half of that were the traders or intermediaries, uh, but, you know, producers, utilities, you know, fairly solid purchasing 
And, you know, where did it come from? So, you know, it's been looked at recently. There was a pretty good paper put out on it uh, by one of the uh, investment firms. And what we're seeing is some of those carry trades being brought forward. And, you know, then that brings pounds that, you know, these guys probably purchased. They were holding an inventory or they had commitments to buy that had flexibility. So they're bringing them from maybe two or three years out up into the current market. And so that's then providing materials, say, for sprot purchases. So what I found over the years is that the traders tend to be pretty savvy. And they'll look at that spread and they'll look at interest rates and currency exchange rates and all kinds of things. And, you know, implement strategies that, let's say, the traditional producer utility market still finds a little confounding. How much more is left? We could see quite a bit more material move, uh, you know, into the current market. Uh, is it eight to 10 million pounds? Could be. I don't think it's, you know, significantly more than that, but it adds to the availability in the near-term market. That's on top of producers selling. You know, Rio Tinto said they sold million and a half pounds out of, you know, what was remaining at uh, Ranger and BHP is reported to sell into the spot market. The Kazakhs obviously show up with uh, spot material. So anyway, we can get to kind of that, you know, several millions of pounds that are then being accumulated by the funds like Sprott, which have purchased, what, 25 million pounds since implementation of the trust. And I think they're now set up to buy maybe that much or more this year. So again, you know, reverse carry trade, it's one of the several sources of material in the near-term market. And maybe by mid-year, we'll see it kind of begin to drop off. It just, you know, kind of, it's one of these things that's really hard to forecast. And it's, it's a decision by each of the individual companies that are involved in forward carry trade, you know, how they deal with what is currently the, the price differential, which is kind of closed between spot and term, but I think the term price, and we're going to see that start to move up pretty smartly over the next few months. So again, we'll have a, an interesting, you know, a differential between the markets. So kind of a long-winded response uh, to just, you know, one of the, what's proving to be a fairly significant source of spot material right now. Dustin, I appreciate that. And I hope the uh, audience listed in there and has a little bit more understanding of that. I know there's some good folks uh, out there that have a very good handle on what's happening there behind the scenes. Uh, a lot of those folks don't talk out, <laughs> out in the public, but nonetheless, yeah. um, appreciate you sharing a little bit of insights there on what's happening. And I think for some people that have big concern here with this, I think that they should just sit tight and uh, take it easy. This is something that uh, is not core to what needs to happen here. But anyway, nonetheless, yeah. let's move on. Let's rehash this U.S. domestic uranium reserve. The current administration seems to be more concerned about uh, domestic social policy over just about <laughs> everything else. Do you think anything comes of this uranium reserve effort by American or, you know, call that by United States? What are your thoughts on the domestic situation here? And do you think anything of note really comes out? Well, as you know, uh, I'm always a little skeptical when the government gets involved. In, in any of these areas of the industry, which they are pretty broadly, you know, something we have to deal with. 
But yeah, the uranium reserve, you know, it gets budgeted. It's less than people had hoped for. The Department of Energy, it would have been what, last May? Or it was a, even before then. Big conference call. We're going to be aggressive. We're going to get this moving. Um, you know, and then they come out with a questionnaire and how much have you got? This is to the, to the supplier producers. The Secretary of Energy, or I think the director of the subgroup says, well, you know, it may take a year for us to get like moving on this. So, you know, it's one of these things that, will it happen? Uh, I, you know, I'm kind of 50 50. I don't, maybe I'm 60 40. I mean, why not? But it's going to be, you know, the, the volume that they can purchase with the budget that's approved, uh, you know, shrinks from the, you know, when it was, when this whole thing started and the price was below 30, now we're in the low 40s. And the general consensus, we didn't really mention it, uh, moving forward is even some of the, the industry analysts are saying, you know, upward price pressure on uranium. Now it's going to be volatile, but the point being is the government program will end up, you know, it, it probably will be, you know, a minimal amount of material. And so I, I don't see it as, you know, some kind of launching the industry forward. And, and you know, the, to their credit, the producers told, I know the government, we need multi-year contracts at sustainable prices in order to make decisions to then invest in restarts or new pro, new you know production facilities and that's not part of the deal so it's it's kind of a nice i guess adder if you've got material particularly in in inventory some of the us guys do have us produced pounds in inventory that they could sell to the government almost overnight um but it it just won't it won't be the you know the government's here to help and and we'll do these contracts to get some basic amount of us production moving forward i think the market will take care of that in other words as a price improves more utilities come in the term market and i think uh they may focus a, a bit they'll they'll make sure some of them that they give the us uh sourced material a good hard look particularly with uh, geopolitical events in kazakhstan so you know and and the uncertainties kind of over the russian supply so again i think there will be market share available for us producers at higher prices and so the government program uh, it it won't matter one way or the other yeah, certainly not in court, Dustin. And if we get to throw an extra sprinkle on the cupcake, we'll take that, but not required. Let's put it that way. And, you know, it's surprising too, though, some of the disregard and head in the sand with these things, which we'll get to Kazakhstan in a moment, but also things like Ukraine, for example, and the strategic nature of what's happening there and the leverage that Russia has. I don't care how you cut it. Putin is a brilliant tactician. And I hate to say it, he's more brilliant than our U.S. counterparts. Anyway, let's move on here on mergers and acquisitions. You're well informed in this area, but uh, you know, very important also at these current stages in my mind, and I think to a lot of good strategic folks out there in this sector, and also very important to many issuers. You're well aware of some of these, quote, strategic reviews coming out officially from folks like Forsys and Toro and Vimy. Probably internally, some others are thinking the same thing, but nonetheless, uh, what are your thoughts on M&A here? 
and also these formalized reviews. Uh, well, one thing, um, you know, I've been in the production side for a pretty long time, and there's a, a sensitivity to, you know, your annual production volume. Back in the, the 80s, early 90s, there were, you know, guys in the U.S. producing five, 600,000 pounds a year. And, and you really can't make a go of it if you're at that, that level. So there's a sense that you've really got to produce, you know, maybe 2 million pounds a year to 3 million pounds to have a decent uh, impact, I guess, in the market on, you know, the utilities then pay more attention to you as a, a long-term supplier. Um, so there's a need for, you know, the, the M&A side, um, let's say on the, the, the bit smaller companies, and plus it's uh, availability of uh, expertise, you know, management, uh, professional expertise in the industry. You know, we still have a lot of companies that have not, quote, staffed up for good reason. You know, we were in an extremely depressed price environment. But now as we move forward, there's more optimism, which I think everyone's aware of on the nuclear side. There's, there's a need to, let's call it agglomerate some of the companies um, to just have a bigger footprint. And, and so I think we're still seeing, you know, discussions going on on that front. And the, even bigger, you know, when, when you've got some fairly large projects that may not fit in the portfolio of a, of a much larger mining company, would, you know, are they potentially interested in uh, vending some of those off or so yeah i think there's you know and, and you mentioned the strategic reviews you know some of the smaller companies don't have the personnel or the expertise to really do a broad uh, based review of what their options are i think they get approached uh with with offers and they say well now with the market improving uh maybe we need to look at you know, what are our, the, the company options that you can then present to the board and say, well, you know, we've had this looked at, here are five options of which three make sense, whatever the outcome is. So I think obviously we're in that phase of, of the industry. And now we've had the equities go up, they've come down, uh, the differentials, uh, you know, start to be a bit different um, and so I just think it's an interesting area right now. And when we come out of the end of the tunnel, there will be uh, not necessarily fewer companies because there will always be those that are created by, you know, a, a couple of geologists with some drill data. And, you know, we're now in the uranium space. But I think, well, you know, there's a need for, first of all, new production beyond the restarts. Uh, which I think everyone's aware of is Langer Heinrich at Paladin, MacArthur River, uh, you know, Kalakira at Lotus, uh, Honeymoon at Boss. But when you get into the second half of the decade, which isn't off, very far off, you do need new production capability. And so that's really the issue is, you know, how many companies are going to be big enough, will have the staffing to move forward to build that two and a half, three million pound a year production facility, all of which will be driven by term contracts. Again, there's just not much going on right now. 
even though with the there'd been the uplift in the equities, the price of uranium, as we know in September, uh, went over $50 a pound for a couple of days, uh, didn't stay there, but you know, then had dropped back, but it's certainly better than in the low 20s. So I think that's, you know, the, the M&A area is, is I think pretty active right now with nothing being formalized, obviously, as you're well aware, you know, Encore did the deal with Azarga in the US, which shows that there's, you know, uh, I guess deals to be done out in the M&A area. So yeah, it's kind of an exciting time for that because when the price is depressed for an extended period and equities are in the, you know, or let's say not overly encouraging, there just wasn't a lot going on. And now I think there is, so. I think there's a lot of people that have warmed up to this and understood that this is actually important and that, you know, the window of the very, very bottom of the barrel times have passed us, but there's still an open window that's closing on M&A, Dustin, and everybody's starting to warm up to the fact that there are some key issues that uh, are out there on M&A and that M&A is actually a very big importance. And I would just say that uh, it sounds like some of these issuers need to employ the services of the good folks at Nuclear Fuel Associates for some M&A work. And then I would also add that uh, the producers or the wannabe producers will become the consumer of their own balance sheet. And what that means is, is that you have to continue to add to that balance sheet and grow that balance sheet, which means M&A. And, yep. you know, okay, expiration expansion, sure. But again, it's going to require basically all of the above. That's important. The other thing is, too, is I think if you're a single asset, single jurisdiction company, you've got a problem. People are waking up to that as well. Single asset, single jurisdiction. That's only going to get you so far. And then on addition right. to that, yeah. Yeah, another quick comment on that, Andrew is that also applies with the utilities signing long-term contracts. They are made more comfortable if you have a bit of a spread on your current or anticipated production sources. So that's just another, it's not a, a major driver, but it's just something that works into, you know, having multiple production sources as a uh, uranium supply company. That wins additional points, um, just like McDonald's production of Big Macs and, and where you can go and collect those. And, of course, the diversity of where you can get those and the different prices, uh, whether you're in the United States or some other country. I you know, hate to simplify it that much, but you know, it really is the basis. The other piece, too, is with this, there's that need to maintain and grow market cap, Dustin, and not lose that market cap. And then there's people that have this big market cap and they're saying, crap. I don't deserve this market cap, so how do I keep it? And mm -hmm. you know that comes back to the M&A question. So anyway, I'll, I'll stop there. I've given enough free <laughs> information there. Well, look, how about uh, just a swap of questions here? Obviously, people are pretty excited about the uh, the spot market. You know, term market seems to be quieter and slower, maybe not behind the scenes. But when do you see that you know sentiment about this available inventory will start to change? When you look at the inventory, I just kind of updated my own little sheet. And if you ignore Russian inventory, uh, you're still around a billion pounds. Now, like 450 million is in the hands of utilities, and including the Japanese. Most That's not mobile. I mean, you know, the utilities tend to, when they adjust inventory on the downside, it's through consumption. 
You know, we've seen it in the U.S. where the U.S. utilities starting maybe three years ago started to uh, work down their strategic inventories a bit. The, the sense was there was plenty of material. Um, but so if you work down through that, obviously the Chinese, I mean, I've seen numbers 350 to 400 million pounds, if not more. You know, a lot of it has come from Kazakhstan. They're by far and away the biggest customer of, uh, out of Kazakhstan. Uh, and people have said, well, when the price goes up, they'll start to sell. Well, and I'll make a comment about the recent purchase by Yellowcake of the 2 million pounds from uh, one of the Chinese trading companies. But no, the Chinese actually, as you've probably seen, just did two term contracts with Kazadam Prom. So they're actually in the accumulation mode still, and it's coming from production. You know, Rossing had uh, a good year last year, what's over 6 million pounds or getting it out of Husab. They are apparently still quietly buying in the spot market, not the biggest volumes that they'd done in the past, but they're still active. And then term, you know, with the contracts with the Kazakhs, Cameco has kind of cautioned the market that don't be surprised if the Chinese come out and, you know, extend some of the contracts they did, you know, way back 10 years ago. So I think that's kind of what we're seeing there is the inventory is probably going to become less mobile. Let's put it that way. You know, there have been estimates of at any point in time, there's, you know, 10 to 15 million pounds available and out of that billion plus. But I think what you'll see is the, the market starts to tighten. The utilities tend to buy more inventory. You think they'd buy it at the bottom of the price cycle. They tend not to do that. Uh, they use the, the particularly the spot market price as a gauge of uh, availability. And so I think as the market price starts to go up, they'll see, uh, you know, they'll be more concerned about future supply availability. So they'll actually start to buy more. So, you know, I think there'll be, let's call it less of that material available into the spot market that might have come from some of the in the, the traders always seem to be in and out. You know, they thrive on market price movements. But the but the utilities, um, the the fuel producers, the converters, the enrichers, the fabricators are sitting on uh, you know tens of millions of pounds of their own material that they use uh, in the in the process. So that's not uh, you know going to be sold into the into the spot market. So yeah, when you get back on the inventory, the Japanese, you know, that inventory went above 100 million pounds. I've seen estimates it's down to like 85 and on the way down to where some of the utilities are actually beginning to look as strange as it sounds in long-term contract. If they in fact are gonna be continuing to restart reactors in Japan under the most recent Na, you know, federal national energy plan of 20 to 22 percent nuclear by 2030. You know, that's uh, 26 to 28 operating reactors. So some of the smaller utilities are actually beginning to look at uh, new long-term purchase agreements. So the chance of that uh, inventory uh, coming back into the market somewhere uh, just doesn't look likely.
So anyway, yeah, the inventory side, not to say some of it won't leak, but I think it will be less likely in a environment of an increasing price than even what we may have seen a couple of years ago. Appreciate that and good stuff there as far as Japan. Certainly see them getting into the low 20s soon on reactors. I think that's going to happen sooner than later. And with regards to the Chinese for a moment, I wanted to talk about that. With you know the Chinese state-sponsored organizations out there, we know their in-house production capacity doesn't cut very much into their needs, Dustin. You know, you, you mentioned Ross and you mentioned HUSAB, which uh, you know we could talk a little bit more about those actually and what their plans are for those two and, and how HUSAB is uh, semi-idled anyway, definitely not at full RPMs, if you will. But what are your thoughts on the Chinese, you know, aside from the Kazataprom feed as well, what are your thoughts on substantial contracting by the Chinese during this cycle? And do you think that the Chinese will be a term contract leader? Well, you know, as you're, you're well aware, in November, in fact, this was another factor in the discussions at the Savannah Conference, you know, Reuters put out a pretty lengthy article on, it looks like the Chinese are planning on 150 additional reactors over the next, what, 10 years, 15 years, anyway, in a fairly short period of time. So when you start looking at what their uranium requirements are, uh, it gets to be like 80 to 90 million pounds a year in the early 2030s, which isn't that far off. So let's say certainly within the next 10 year time frame. So if you're consuming that much, and keep in mind, new reactors require a couple million pounds for the initial core. So their uranium needs are massive from a planning standpoint. Even if they don't reach that, people go, well, they'll never get to that point. They have to plan that they will. And so they've had the three-legged stool approach almost from day one, buying in the spot market, signing long-term contracts with reliable suppliers, and investing in production. And I have not seen anything that suggests they're going to move away from that. Now, they'd like more in-house production. First of all, Chinese production is not substantial and, and it doesn't look like it will be for the foreseeable future. But, you know, their investments in Africa, Kazakhstan, um, that's an important part of their uranium procurement. But yeah, term contracts, now, keep in mind um, that portfolio, uh, you know, had and it's been public, Cameco, Arano, uh, I think BHP did contracts with them. But one of the other suppliers was Rio Tinto, which is now gone. And so if you're the Chinese, you, you know, you have to look out there and say, well, they like to deal with the bigger producers, not to say if you're a two million pound producer, you can't get a Chinese contract. But, you know, they go with the Oranos, the Cameco's, the Kazat and Proms, the BHP's. As again, Cameco is kind of flagged. Don't be surprised when the Chinese resurface in the term market. And it could be fairly large volumes, which will then be taken off the table and not available to say Western utilities. I mean, that's really the message I think Cameco is trying to put out. And I think it's reasonable that the Chinese are not going away. Let's just say their popularity in the West is not what it was a few years ago. And so, you know, that's why I think they're focused more on Africa. And, uh, you know, 
term contracts, maybe more volume out of Canada, maybe some out of Australia. But I think their supply sources are a, a bit uh, more uh, limited than they were 10 years ago. So again, will they be a leader? You might not see it. That's another thing is they're not going to put out a public request for proposals. Everything is done off market. So by the time someone announces that there's been big Chinese contracting, uh, the market won't, wouldn't have seen it until then. So again, the, the thing is they're kind of a stealth demand. You, you're not going to see till they've come and gone. So it's just one thing, again, this is another issue that the Western utilities, particularly in the US, have to take into account, is how much demand pressure will there be on the term market? And it could be substantial. I've been told the Emirates, they need more material. They're not fully contracted and they've not been in the market, you know, since 2012, I think, you know, almost 10 years. So, so again, we're going to see a lot of activity out there. And yes, back to your initial question, I think the Chinese will be a pretty big factor in the term market. Yeah, some of these emerging nations will continue to add to this uh, pressure. The competition between Western utilities and Chinese, you know, uh, Russian-backed demand is, is going to be substantial. I don't think there's any way to cut around that one. And two, they have the various stages of investment they have. I mean, when you look at, you know, places like Africa, we know that they're involved in places like Namibia and they're involved in Botswana and pretty much own ACAP resources at that deposit. And then Australia, they have some exposure via ownership of equities, uh, substantial ownership of some equities on development, exploration stage assets. They've got connections in Canada, obviously, as you know. So they've definitely done a, an interesting job in, in getting their fingers in just about everything. And they're definitely going to need every bit of that stool, Dustin, as you, as you stated there. Here's a different question here, interesting one from the audience. And I quote now, my question is connected to Bob Farrell's 10 rules. Rule number four says exponential rapidly rising or falling markets usually go further than you think, but they do not correct by going sideways. Has the breakout occurred in the uranium market or is it ahead? End quote. Well, I think if you go back to the price rise in the early 2000s, when the price got to $136 for a brief period, and then it kind of came back down again to around, let's say, 70 at the time of Fukushima. That's a good example of the overshoot. I, th I think at that point, you know, it just didn't have, uh, it wasn't sustainable. Now, the current price improvement, yeah, we got up to the $50, you know, from around 30, driven a lot by the Sprott purchasing. And then one thing that they did put out at the Savannah Conference is how Sprott will operate where they will buy when it's accretive. There, there was some assumptions that they'd be in the market every day, no matter what, and that's not true. So you'll see as the, 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 the market dropped and the and, you know, NAV versus the trust certificate price got upside down, let's call it that, they stepped back. And I think that's what they've done recently. We've seen them because of the stock market volatility. And so the point being though, that will then be a driver of the market going forward. You know, UX, that's, a, you know, one of the leading consulting firms in the nuclear fuel area, you know, they made the comment in Savannah that, you know, the, the Sprott Trust will change the market in ways we don't anticipate yet. 
So I think that on top of uh, buying by yellow cake, I see the, the, the shareholder just approved more purchases for 2022. We have the new trust being put together or the fund by the, the Kazakhs. Um, that will be, has been called an accelerant to the market price change. So I think we've not had the true breakout yet, but we're really close to it. I think as we move forward this year, is it, you know, in the next couple of months, is it by the, the middle of the year when Sprott uh, hopefully is listed in New York, that'll open up even more capital, although they're at the market facility is three and a half billion dollars. I mean, that's a pretty big number for someone to have the capability in the, the spot market for purchasing. So yeah, I think we're gonna see, uh, you know, as everyone seems to be kind of coming on board with that upward pressure. And I've heard numbers, I'm not, you know, necessarily an advocate of the spot price going over a hundred fairly easily. And there are some saying it could go to 200 and people go, oh, no way. Well, it went to a hundred and almost 140 back in, you know, 06, 07, I can't remember the exact year. So why not? And, and we didn't have a Sprott that was coming out buying, I think one day they bought a million and a half pounds. So that's gonna be constant pressure on the spot price. That's when the breakout comes. That's when the term price, you know, won't be 45. It'll have a five in front of it and could get with a six in front of it fairly quickly. Everybody's going, oh, no, no, there's plenty of material. No, there isn't. When you start to look at new developments, there really aren't many below $60. And there's a, another school of thought that says you could get into the 70s, depending on the demand, which we really haven't kind of gone through everything that's, that's uh, happening out there, including SMRs, which, you know, like the WNA report in September did not take SMR demand into account. Now, the new report out of the WNA will, you know, trade text presentation in Savannah was on the demand from SMR development. And it's a pretty noticeable increment, certainly as you get out toward 2030 and beyond. So breakout, not quite yet, but I think uh, the factors are, are really starting to align. Yeah, the big break's coming, and with cost escalation that's happening, you know, these these bigger numbers are certainly in the ballpark, and, you know, we'll see where it takes us, but definitely we are going over, you know, 100 at some point. There's no doubt about that now, and I think you can just attach cost escalation to it uh, to get to that. A lot of these DFSs and enhanced DFSs and DFS 2.0, BFS 5.0, you know, all these numbers, they, they literally change in a month. Now you've got to throw these numbers on and, and you can see the cost escalations occurring. Look at the copper sector, look at the projects in development in the gold space that are under construction now. And then all of a sudden, oh, we've got a, on a billion dollar cap. Oh, we've got a 200 million adjustment just for cost escalation that occurred in the last <laughs> six months. <laughs> get back out the pencil, sharpen up and get ready to call those suppliers. I mean, you're lucky if suppliers even hold 15 days on their proposals. We've yep. got to adjust. We've got to upward adjust it. You want that manufacturing done? That's going to be 18-month lead time. And that's if you're lucky. If we catch the big break next year or this year, you know, I'm indifferent to that. The more time, the better. And if the broad market's going to 
bleed us in the short term, also that you have some good opportunity as a result of that, and that should be pointed out. Well, let's move to Cameco. Should be some good fireworks coming out of there with respect to the upcoming earnings and also likely other surprises that may come about. But what do you think about how they consider their assets now outside of Kazakhstan? And I want to talk specifically more about Kazakhstan in a moment, Dustin, but how do you think they look at their asset base now with Canada? Maybe Australia starts to fit back in as maybe not non-core, but maybe sliding back over to core and maybe even non-core U.S. assets. Kazakhstan before was very, very important and still is, but there's a risk uh, to Western companies um, in that region. Well, yeah, I think, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about Kazakhstan, I think, in a minute. But, you know, if I'm Cameco, I mean, I can't speak for management there, but with uh, the uncertainties increasing, let's say, in Kazakhstan, and, and you mentioned Australia, you know, the Western Australian government, I think, as you're aware, is now, uh, let's say, pulling licenses or permits because there's not been significant activity. You know, I think Vimy's the one that went out and started, you know, putting in roads and doing things uh, at Mulgarak to keep their their Western Australian licenses and permits. But Yaliri, apparently that got pulled. And now Cameco's gone back and said that they're going to, you know, uh, petition the government for an extension, a time extension. So I think, you know, you you have to, the situation in Kazakhstan seems to be under control, and we'll talk about that. But you've got to step back and say, well, wait a minute, maybe my Australian assets, if you're Cameco, will have more value going forward. Um, and, and we'll talk about why that might be the case. Or in the U.S., you know, I mean, it's the U.S. involvement is, you know, their, you know, Crow Butte and other production facilities aren't a whole, you know, they don't, they don't produce a whole lot. It gets back to my point where you kind of want to have large production, but yeah, would they step back and say, hey, you know, this is, this is worth more now uh, than it was, uh, you know, on December 31st? And is it going to be worth that much more that we hang on to it or we reprioritize and and bring it you know kind of not tier one but tier one and a half kind of remains to be seen we're still early days with all this but it's certainly not oh it's not going to matter you know we'll just stick with our our strategy we developed years ago on either holding these properties or you know offering to sell you know, whatever. So I think there's a lot of moving parts. Cameco, I'm sure, is, is looking at it all, you know, which would be the responsible thing for management to do. Yeah, I think there is a reevaluation that's probably going to occur now. And some of the West Australia projects, uh, you know, the various permits that are there, uh, some are fresher than others, some are pretty, uh, you know, dingy and hairy at this point, as far as, you know, how long they've been out, out there. Uh, definitely, we could talk about those on a different conversation, but interesting to see how this gets reevaluated now that uh, Kazakhstan's dropped down and lost a few points here. And then also, you mentioned Rio being non-existent, and certainly they're dormant. You wouldn't certainly count them out yet. As you know, they have some maces in their back pocket, but nonetheless, they're uh, winding down as it would so look with things like Ranger. But uh, Kazakhstan, let's get into that because we've referred to it a few times. What influence do you think Moscow will have on the future uranium production by Kazataprom, you know, in Kazakhstan and 
you know, we've seen news of, you know, liquidation of the state-sponsored fund that owns CAP. What are your thoughts on Moscow influence and, you know, what Kazakhstan is, is here going forward? Well, obviously, we could spend half a day talking about the Russian geopolitical strategy. Clearly, the, the Putin government has wanted to bring Central Asia back closer to Mother Russia. Uh, and, and they've done that through investments, through purchasing. You know, I understand some of the HEU-derived LEU that was shipped to the United States had what's called, you know, carrier feed. In other words, the enrichment has to come, it's attached to the uranium. In other words, the uranium has been enriched. And the carrier feed, it's called, was Kazakh. It wasn't Russian uranium. So they'd been taking it in from Kazakhstan and using it in their process. So, you know, do they have a, you know, a large say in what goes on there? You know, kind of yes and no. The Kazakhs, I think, for years said, well, no, we're independent, arm's length. But, you know, when, the, when there was a call for security forces to come in, they were clearly Russian. They arrived very quickly. Now, I understand uh, they're either been withdrawn or most of them have been withdrawn. So, yeah, I mean, there's a big Russian, I think, influence still in Kazakhstan. Now, what does that do for, you know, Kazatomprom and uranium production? Kind of remains to be seen. The Kazakh situation, as you know, flared up very quickly. Kazatomprom made it very clear that it didn't really affect their operations because it was mostly confined to the either larger cities or the regions that are away from where production takes place. But, you know, is it was it a one-time, once-off situation, or will it potentially continue to put pressure on the Kazakhstan government and economy? You know, they want to yeah, increase taxes on the mining companies now to provide more money for social programs. You know, Kazatom Prom just came out with their fourth quarter operations and trading summary, and they made it very clear that, you know, they have supply chain challenges and it's well field drilling, it's, you know, uh, process materials. And that could, first of all, uh, affect their guidance. On production, that's why they have a broader range than they've had in the past. And they've said also the financial metrics of what they're doing. So again, I think they're kind of laying the groundwork, or at least signaling that, yeah, we could have challenges on the production side and we could have cost issues. You know, everyone's aware that the current group of production facilities were pretty much the low hanging fruit. And so now as they expand beyond that, they're probably going to see cost implications. But I think it's still early days. And then the other is uh, procurement by the Western utilities. You know, if, if you're a U.S. utility, you, you do have to step back and say, um, I did look at the last 10 years and Kazakh origins represented about 18% of the volume of purchases by the U.S. utilities. So, you know, it's almost, a, you know, a fifth of their uranium. And they get it not just from Kazat and Prom, Uranium One, Cameco, Arano, you know, these other companies that are active in Kazakhstan. 
but you know, I think it's been recognized that the utilities value uh, security of supply. And I think they have to look at it. And it may not be the production facilities. It may be transport. You know, this material goes across Russia, out of St. Petersburg. You know, there's a long rail haul, unless you go to China, obviously. And so I think, you know, the, the bigger utilities certainly have to step back and say, you know, do I continue to commit at the level that I have in the past? Do I cut back on the volumes? Do I uh, buy more strategic inventory in case there is an upset? Uh, like I said, it's still early days. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we're not out of January yet. And I think the utilities will take all of that into account. You know, again, if you're Cameco and, you know, Inkai is a big project, but you say, well, what if there is, nobody's saying stoppage where they go from 58 million pounds to zero, but what if there's an upset in either operations, uh, you know, they still have COVID issues or in transport. So there's no clear path yet, but this industry is cautious, the consumption side. You know, you cannot have a situation where your units, the operation is affected because you don't have fuel on site, on time. So that is a huge issue. And so I think that's kind of where we are with Kazakhstan. They're the, you know, produce 40% of the world's uranium. And it has been at relatively low cost. The production facilities are at the lower end of the supply curve. But as you say, labor cost, you know, costs of input, acid, you know, the, the newer mines of wealthies are significant consumers of acid. So will that be affected? So, so again, it, 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 it puts that uncertainty into the, the production side, which then goes into procurement by the utilities. And, you know, I think the Kazakhs have done a good job of, you know, reliability of supply. They've met all of their delivery commitments that I'm aware of, and they very much value being viewed as a long-term reliable supplier. But, you know, do other events start to impact that uh, remains to be seen. So it's a pretty fluid situation still. And with regards to the Moscow influence, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the Ukraine side and how, you know, it could be construed in a way that, hey, we have a problem internally in Ukraine and, you know, we're going to ask the, the Russian government to come in and help us out. You know, it's interesting that you could throw some of the same strategy over on that side of things. And then also that Ukraine, there is impacts there in the Iranian market as well. Um, but back to the cost profile, absolutely. I, I think everything gets more expensive because of the cost escalations we're seeing in most places around this globe. Now, there's certainly there's some places that have been more isolated than others, which aren't the topic that we need to discuss. But in the past, production in Kazakhstan has been cheap due to the currency credit, you know, labor costs. Yep. And a big one that I think not a lot of people have considered is no environmental or ESG overhead. That's a big chunk right there that people sometimes you know miss and don't think about as compared to western companies there's so much more overhead on environmental and esg and regulatory <laughs> it's pretty much a free-for-all over there especially when it's the government itself that essentially is involved with the production um, i don't care how you cut it there's a lot of waving of formalities 
And then the unrest component, like you said, the logistical part of this. So certainly the costs are going to go up. Um, I think there's a few points taken off on reputation here. And, and I guess this carries into, you know, we mentioned yellow cake before, but challenges in this region, typically Western companies in this region and the stands, Mongolia, for example, Turkey, to some extent, these areas are challenged with respect to Western companies. It can be very challenging. We've seen lots of loss of assets um, in these regions. And so image with the West, that whole thing with Kazataprom wanting to be, you know, we want to be a tier one source and relationship with the utilities globally. Let me tie this in with that reputation part, Dustin, get your comments there. And then also on Yellowcake, do you think Kazataprom continues to honor their option agreement all the way out to what, 2027? Well, yeah, well, first of all, on kind of their reputation, again, it's still too early to say, oh, well, you know, this has really permanently somehow uh, impacted the Kazakhs. It, it doesn't help. And like I said, I think the utilities will look at it and say, hey, I need to take into account that there is the potential for social unrest, for government uh, you know, more in, involvement now. I, I know they want to sell out of the sovereign wealth uh, investment there, but well, who buys in? You know, that, that remains to be seen. So, not going to throw any negative uh, rocks at, at Kaz Adam Prom. Like I said, I think they've done a really good job of changing the perception by being much more open. Now, of course, they're they're public, so they have to be. But you know, say go back ten years. And it was really difficult to find out anything that was going on in Kazakhstan. So they've been more open. I think they've been, like I said, reliable suppliers to the West. They've not, uh, you know, failed to deliver. The Russians, you know, the Russians have been delivering into the West since the 70s. And I'm not aware of them ever missing a delivery of, of nuclear fuel anywhere. So, you know, the Kazakhs were kind of taking that approach, you know, and then you get back to Yellowcake. Now, I do not speak for the management of Yellowcake, but we've certainly had discussions. And at this point, they see no reason to be concerned that Kazad and Prom will not honor that 10-year option, but I think it goes through, as you say, 27. So, you know, I think the company's operating under the the assumption that the, the option will be, if it's exercised by Yellowcake, will be honored by Kazadam Prom. We have no reason to say it won't. And I think they know the implications. If they don't honor it, then yeah, there's legal protection, but you know, it, it that instantaneously gets into the market. And once you don't make a delivery or you renege on a contractual commitment, that has a massive negative effect on your ability to be a reliable supplier. So I think they will do whatever within their power, their, you know, within reason to make sure they meet all of their commitments. Now, will they try to adjust timing? Maybe there's a timing issue or whatever. Could, I mean, you know, it's, it's a long way from the middle of Kazakhstan to, you know, Converdine. But I think in the end, they're fully intending to be a reliable supplier. Good points. And certainly Yellowcake, I mean, given the Sprott comparison, it certainly is inferior to the vehicle at this point. But they do have this option. It's very valuable. And then also, you know, look, 
as much as they can bring forward and accumulate now, I think it's much better. Let's not speculate on what the price would be in 25, 26, and 27, but certainly uh, the prices are very amenable to accumulation here. Well, let's leave it there, Dustin. Let's uh, wrap up. Covered a lot of area here, and I know you and I could make this podcast much longer here talking all this good content, but how about your upcoming schedule for the audience members who might want to possibly meet up at a sector conference? Uh, maybe just outline your plans for 2022 and maybe where people could potentially meet up with you to discuss business. Uh, well, I think, you know, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist, as you know, which you have to be if you're in the nuclear uranium area. In-person conferences, you know, there's the, to be uh, in The Hague, and I think that's in March sometime is planning it to be in-person at this point. Uh, the World Nuclear Fuel Market will get together in Montreal. I believe that's in June. At least that's a plan. And then, of course, there's a WNA annual symposium in London, which is in September. And I think there will be you know, every intent of, of having that gathering because if The Hague doesn't happen for quarantine COVID reasons, again, London will be the first chance to get together. And it's been, you know, what, since 19. So what, it'll be three years. So that's the plan, you know, and uh, the rest of it is still, you know, there's still a lot of Zoom calls going on. Also is uh, the utilities. You know, I am doing work for a couple of producers in the marketing contracting area. You know, the utility said in our meetings in Savannah, hey, we're not having people come and visit with us, and we'd really like to see that happen. So, you know, am I on that plane to Birmingham, Alabama, and Jackson, Mississippi, and all of that? That could also also happen. So, yeah, I think it's just going to be, you know, increased tempo from a in-person uh, standpoint. No, I just see more of that than less. Okay, and I think we've got BMO too, I think Florida, if I recall. Yep, yep. Well, hopefully some folks can hook up with you and, and discuss some business topics, et cetera, here. And it's good to see that people are getting back out there as we need to as well. And the Great Plague has really kind of disrupted a lot of that from different policies where you're coming from. It's just uh, quite oh, yeah. a debacle and really oh, yeah. becoming a bit silly. Here we are coming into February 2022. <laughs> So how about uh, for potential clients uh, consulting to investors and others in the audience, um, what would you say to them about considering the services of nuclear fuel associates? Um, well, I think, you know, hopefully the audience uh, has a feel for my background is, is in the uranium kind of production. I've worked for a variety of production companies in the past, both big and small, more in the finance area. You know, I am getting calls for you know, gee, can we have that half an hour discussion about what's going on in China or Kazakhstan or whatever, then just kind of supporting what some of the investment community might be looking at. You know, I think I'm seeing more and more of the, the groups that haven't been involved in uranium now saying, hey, I need to kind of get up to speed fairly quickly. And the market is not, as you know, is not that straightforward. You know, there's just a lot of nuance and the role of term contracting. It makes the, the uranium market quite a bit different that it's not just driven by spot. And a couple of the producers are saying, well, I'm going to go ahead and develop my project and it's low cost and I don't need term contracts. I'm not so sure of that. 
And so the role of, of long-term sustainably priced term contracts really is crucial. And the other thing is just, I'll mention it, is you know there's a lot, as you say, um, a lot of DFS work, a lot of optimization, a lot of you know review on the technical potential operational side. Having a well thought out marketing strategy can be as important or more so on how do you price if you're you know requested to offer a long term contract? Do you provide options? That's one thing that's affecting the spot market is some of the producers gave fairly uh, substantial options that are now being triggered and that material is coming back into the spot market because the utility doesn't need it, but they're approached by a trader who says, hey, you've got an option of plus 20%, your contract's at $35, why don't you trigger that? We'll, you know, we'll share the difference between that and selling it uh, you know, into the spot. So anyway, kind of thinking through diversification, you know, not all customers are the same. Some are better to work with, easier, more you know, reason. So anyway, long story short, that's the kind of areas that I uh, you know, spend quite a bit of my time in. I appreciate that and I encourage issuers and other CEOs, et cetera, and even some class of investors to uh, consider the services there. Uh, that you offer. I think it uh, carries a lot of value with it, Dustin, and appreciate that. And what's the uh, best way for them to contact Nuclear Fuel Associates? Email. You know, we're on the move both professionally and personally. We spend time in Arizona. We're going back down next week. So to sometimes I can be a bit of a moving target. Dustin, always a pleasure to chat. You stay well, and we'll be talking again soon. Okay. Well, thanks a lot, Andrew, and look forward to it. A lot of moving parts right now. So we'll talk soon.